when we left off, I was talking about original intent as it relates to the type and shadow of man and woman in marriage uh, being representational of Christ and the church. Now, as clear as that is, the, the theology surrounding marriage, divorce, and remarriage has become particularly murky. And uh, when you wade into the swamp or into the fog, what you find is that there was a point in time where there was a convolution of spiritual things and natural things. It came about when the church began to seek and to gain the approval of the state, when church law, church authority, the power of the church to adjudicate things relied upon a nexus with the state in which the state granted to the church permission to do things within the church. Here, when this occurred, the state became preeminent and the church became subservient because the state retained final authority in the adjudication of matters, granting limited authority, particularly granting something called ecclesiastical authority to the church. Coming out of uh, the period of, uh, of persecution that always trailed the church in the early, in the early church, on account of the opposition by the Roman state, when Constantine granted uh, the Edict of Toleration and subsequently um, required creedal forms of church doctrine in order to grant state power, the state, the church by then, nearly uh, 200 and some 275 years after Peter and Paul and the early apostles had died, was only too happy to vie for the state, for, for the favor of the state, to have whatever authority the state was granting. The state was granting such things as the restoration of civil rights that had been lost um, under under emperors such as Domitian, uh, property that had been confiscated um, and the right to assemble and various and sundry civil rights that, that uh, had been taken from the church during the years of persecution were now being handed back. And indeed the church had gained a kind of authority largely because in the Roman world, perhaps 10% of the population had become Christianized. And Constantine saw the power of this, uh, uh, this um, entity within the state uh, 
to be able to harmonize and standardize, unify the Roman Empire from the vast reaches of it, from the wall of Hadrian in the north of England, all the way past the Bosphorus into Asia, what is now modern day Turkey, and um, saw the opportunity to unify it for political reasons. So it granted the state, it granted the power of the state to the church. But the church remained subservient to the state. Now what is important to understand is that there, was, there has always been state churches in the ancient world. Whether it was among the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Babylonians, the priests played a preeminent role in connecting uh, the, the authority of the kings uh, over the people uh, to the gods. And so this was not a new concept, but it reached a height of formality during Constantine where it was effectively by legislative, um, in conscious legislative intent and a body of supporting law, it was formalized. So now you had the formal church of the state. But again, it was subservient, it was subservient to the state. Now, the basic change was based in a presumption that citizens of the state were now members of the church, or flip it over to be more accurate, members of the church were citizens of the state because the franchise of religious authority had been granted by the state to the church, so there was an exclusivity of this franchise as it applied to the people in general. So if you were Roman, you were a Christian. Just like in the ancient world, if you were, uh, or before that, if you lived in the city of Athens, uh, or if you lived in the city of Ephesus, and these were Greek states, city-states that had particular gods uh, of the Greek uh, pantheon, if you lived in the city of Ephesus, you were of Diana of the Ephesians. Or if you lived in, in Corinth, uh, Zeus was your god. So, in the Roman state, once this franchise of authority was granted, you were Roman, you were a Christian. They'd baptize the legions. It's not difficult to see that in that process, the value of harmonizing the state and, um, uniform, and making it uniform was to be able to allow for a kind of across-the-board predictability based in this nexus between the church and the state. Um, even when the ancient Roman, the classic Roman Empire ended, the rebooting of the, what came to be known as the Holy Roman Empire, the rebooting of that uh, by the crowning of um, Charlemagne as the first Holy Roman Emperor simply restated that earlier uh, arrangement except that now 
rather than the, the, the state being all-powerful, the church had the role in crowning the emperor. At that time, the emperor was still all-powerful. All but shortly after that, and in the vacuum that, the power vacuum that resulted when, Const when uh, Charlemagne passed on, the church filled the power vacuum and became the most potent force within the nations of Europe. In fact, so powerful that the, the Pope could launch crusades in the Middle East and did so for 250 years, ostensibly to take back the birthplace of Christ. What am I describing? I'm describing a sort of creeping uh, replacement of the distinctiveness of the authority of Christ to produce the kingdom of God among the nations of the earth. People who, as in the days of Paul and Peter, might be persecuted by the state, as indeed they were by the Roman state. Instead now, with this franchise, you have an amalgamation of the, of the power of the church and the power of the state and a merging of the identities of both. So the state was not held accountable to the standards of Christ. By granting this power, the state could do, the state essentially could define theology. And there the idea came to be that whatever was generally acceptable based on the culture of a people became what was generally acceptable in the church. Uh, for example, there was a, a long history of uh, lights being, uh, lights kept on candlelight or, or, or lamps kept uh, tended in the temple of Vesta because the Romans believed that they were descended from the Trojans, the, the Trojan refugees. In fact, that was the subject of the book called the Aeneid that uh, was written by the great poet, Roman poet, Latin, uh, Latin poet Virgil that chronicled the journeys of Aeneas from the fall of Troy until they settled in and amongst the seven hills of Rome. And they brought the hearth gods and uh, the light or the candles that lit the, the shrines to the hearth gods were placed within the temple of Vesta, the mother goddess of the Trojans subsequently of the Romans. And the, the Vestal virgins tended the lights. One of their main jobs was to tend the lights in the temple. And the, the, it was really the, 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 the fire of the hearth, the home, the hearth, the fireplace. Uh, the legend was that if the, if the lights in the temple of Vesta ever went out, the Roman Empire would cease to exist. So when the state 
granted authority to the church and included in that grant of authority that made the church the church of the state, it granted all of the religious buildings that previously belonged to various gods uh, and the temples that belonged to various gods, granted all of those to the church to set up shop as it were, but required certain Romanesque qualities to the continuation of, of, uh, of the use of these religious buildings, including women who remain perpetually virgins. Today they are known as nuns. And one of the things that was required was that they maintain the fire of the hearth in the temple. So that's why candles continue. Have you ever wondered why, where did these things come from? Well, they were vestigial remains of things that were uniquely Roman, as in ancient Rome, pagan Rome, pre-Christian Rome. Vesta was not just a goddess, she was the mother goddess and the hard connection of the Romans to their Trojan uh, uh, heritage. So the church did not get the right to uniformly decide on every matter what was truly biblical or ecclesiastical. It always had to keep an eye on what the state required of it because its grant of power was subject to cancellation by the state because the state and not the Holy Spirit granted it power. Now over time, through the Middle Ages coming up into uh, the age of enlightenment and beyond that, as human society began to move forward as this connection between church and state where the citizenry was automatically assumed to be members of the church. The populations, uh, as new things were received, new discoveries were made, new things were received, the populations began to assume a background of having the same church background and they simply added new discoveries to this church background. So uh, at, uh, let's pick up at the point where um, the great thinker Thomas Aquinas began to define law. Before Aquinas, Peter Abelard had written uh, a compendium of ecclesiastical law. So uh, they, they were very in, into um, attempting to define how society ought to be governed. You will, you will see quite readily that this trend continued even after the Reformation came when people like John Calvin established the city of Geneva, uh, Zwingli the city of Bern, and they were experimenting with the concept of the kingdom of God or the city of God 
based on a model of Augustine uh, from the 5th century. They were attempting to define this amalgamation of church and state. In, this, in the case of, uh, of Calvin, uh, Zwingli, Luther, uh, those were more in terms of city-states as opposed to an entire nation such as the Roman state. But the principle is they saw everybody within that city or within that state as being of the same religious persuasion. So they were attempting to understand how society ought be governed and Abelard had, Peter Abelard had written uh, this compendium of ecclesiastical law. Uh, a, a contemporary of his, uh, Thomas Aquinas, began to articulate the distinctions of law as he perceived them and he said that there are different, four different kinds of law. Number one, he said there, were etern- there was eternal law, number two, natural law, number three, human law, and number four, divine law. All right? Now, the one that was, that was developed because society continued to develop was natural law. There the idea was that there are seven basic good results that may be observed from natural law. Natural law was supposed to contain basic goods that relate to life, knowledge, sociability, friendship, play, ascetic experience, practical reasonableness, and religion. So they were attempting to understand law both as it was observable in nature and practically applied to society. And they began to think in terms of what things promoted the good of society. As scientific developments came along, they tended to give even greater credence to the idea that natural law had a kind of pervasive quality that was uniformly acceptable. Perhaps the greatest proponent of natural law in in quasi-modern thinking was Sir Isaac Newton who's famous for the discovery of gravity. And gravity came to be nearly the touchstone for the concept of natural law. That um, there were invisible things in nature that God had put there and uh, that when we discover them, uh, they revealed the nature of God. So there was this this sort of, of course, Isaac Newton was a great believer. And, and in regards to the discovery of gravity, certainly uh, has had and has a great testimony regarding the hidden things of God within nature. And in that sense, it relates quite well 
to the principle that says, the invisible God may be clearly seen being understood from what has been created, therefore man is without excuse. But as these things go, once the principle is introduced and gains widespread acceptance, it it becomes the uh, it becomes the basis for all kinds of things that are not necessarily uh, consistent with the principle. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage came to be one of the casualties of natural law. Because where you have everybody in the society essentially belonging to the same church, having the same culture, no one stopped to think that although there were civil benefits, one of the seven characteristics of natural law, civil benefits to society from one husband, one wife, that that was in fact not the basis of the original intent. Natural law was a sleigh of hand by which divine representation was seen as only a matter of beneficial results. What do I mean? Marriage became a touchstone of value precisely because in a stable Christian environment where everybody was a Christian, everybody was the same, was a member of the church, everybody was a member of the state. Then they began to infer conclusions about Scripture that were not in fact true. It was true that marriage between a man and a woman was a very um, stabilizing building block of society. That was true that became the value of natural law, that that became what was important about marriage, the foundation of society, the stability of society, stability of families. That only depended, however, on the commonality that everybody in the society ascribed to as part of a cultural experience that was shared. It was by no means the understanding of the original intent. In the beginning it was not so. What was the original intent? The original intent was representational, not of the stability of society, that's a result, that's not representational of anything. What is representational about marriage is Christ and the church, the reconciliation between God and man, not merely a benefit to society. But once religion adopted that posture, then they took a hardened position against divorce because that would wreck the social contract that would disallow the approved benefit. It was simply a switch. 
I'm astonished at how many preachers to this day argue for the social benefit of marriage as the basis on which divorce is prohibited. Now, what has, got, what has happened since church and state? Well, people don't belong to the same religion anymore. More than that, well, and, and people never belong to the, the, the same religion. This was just a Western, the evolution of a Western uh, mindset based in the commonality of Roman religion. In the East, people married multiple wives. In tribal societies, marriage was, was a, a very fluid thing. So there was not on the earth anything resembling, not then, not now, consensus about the, the, the value of marriage to society. But that was never the biblical point anyway. Marriage was representational of Christ and the church, not merely conferring a benefit upon society where everybody had the same religious belief and by and large everybody had the same ethnic background. You take this concept outside of that and you have a wide variety as to what, what might be considered benefit or non-benefit of marriage. But what remains standard is God's original intent regardless of human society. So the conflation of the social benefit uh, to society that had reached a level of homogeneous or homogeneous uh, 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 levels of, of commonality has long been conflated with the purpose of marriage. But in the beginning there was an original intent and it wasn't that it conferred benefits upon society. If it did, that would be simply ancillary, not originally the, the foundation of it. So, in the world of believers and non-believers then, which has been the destruction of that hegemony? The hegemony of church and state now has been thoroughly destroyed because even within, let's say, the American society, there are far more unbelievers than there are believers. People are leaving the churches by the droves. So what do we say to people who never accepted Christ? Do you know such a concept back in say the 1800s or maybe early 1900s in the United States, the idea of people being atheists in America was taboo. Nobody would admit that they were atheists. Everybody went to church, it was part of the culture. You were born uh, into a certain family, you were Christianized by being baptized as a kid, as a child, and so on and so forth. So today, this supposed value to society of the stability of marriage does not hold uniform appeals. 
So what I want to do now when we come back is to freely see the interplay between original intent and uh, uh, natural law and then get back to what believers ought to know and do in regards to marriage, divorce and remarriage. I'm Sam Solon, we'll continue our discussion then. Thanks. Bye-bye.